Before I begin, uh, let me uh, start with prayer. God, Father of our Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak through me today so that my hearers' understanding of your character would deepen, that they would understand your perfect justice and your perfect mercy, and that through a greater understanding of this, they would be blown away by your mercy to them on the cross. Amen. Have you ever felt overwhelmed for the guilt of the sins you have committed? Committing a sin so heinous that you find it hard to believe, God would be willing to forgive you. Maybe you've been struggling with pornography addiction. Maybe you've denied Christ due to social pressure. You committed a crime, killed an unborn child, engaged in a homosexual act, had sex outside of marriage. Maybe you badly hurt someone you deeply cared about. Moses had to grapple with a similar issue, albeit on a much larger and grander scale, with a whole nation. The Israelites had a tendency to rebel against God. Um, They showed this rebellious character time and time again throughout the Exodus narrative. And they completely disobeyed God's command. Our God is a righteous God, a just God. And he will always punish evil. And as a result of Israel's continuous rebellion against God, they were in great danger of receiving his punishment. God's righteous punishment. Um, And this danger caused a significant problem for Moses. In the context of the passage I'm preaching on today is a time when Israel's at their lowest point in the whole of Exodus, the whole of the Exodus story. Our passage follows on the heels of an incident where Israel betrayed God by worshipping a golden calf at Mount Sinai. Um, at this point in the narrative, there's little hope for Israel. The situation is actually pretty dark. Moses has led the uh, reader with a very, very big question. How can there be any hope for Israel when they're continuously re- breaking the covenant? Um, In our passage today, God answers this question by revealing his character. God's heart is inclined to showing incredible love and benevolence towards his people. At the same time, he warns that he judges those who will not turn away from their rebellion against God and put their trust in Jesus. He is loving and just at the same time. When we sin, when we violate God's law, We need to look past our sin to God's gracious character. The solution to the problem of our guilt is not to downplay the reality of our rebellion, but it's it's his mercy despite our sins. The truth is we can be truly evil at times, all of us. Lying about our reality doesn't help us, but what we need to look to is God's mercy because that mercy surpasses the evil that we do by far. God's mercy is infinitely bigger than our sins. Um, My first point is that God reveals himself to Moses by proclaiming his name. We're told in verse 5 that God proclaims his name to Moses. Please read with me the verse verse 5 and in the uh, 
and the beginning of verse 6. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Sorry, that's awesome. I have never seen that before. Thank you. <laughs> uh, to understand this verse, uh, we need to look past, we need to first understand a little bit about the historical context we're looking at. In the, in the modern world, um, so at that time, when the readers heard God proclaimed his name, what they would have heard is God was proclaiming his character. Um, in the modern world, a name is simply an identifying label. Um, as I mentioned before, my name is Andrew. Um, when I say my name is Andrew, you don't think that has anything to do with my character. Um, you instinctively know that my name is my identifying label. My name could be Luke, and there would be very little difference to you. Uh, fairly important to me, but... Um, I would just simply have a different label, to be honest, um, if you get down to it. But that's different to the ancient Near East. Um, in their culture, names either were much different. They had even conveyed some symbolic meaning, or they actually described something about someone's character. Um, so, for example, God once changed Sarai's name uh, to Sarah, um, uh, which Sarai means my princess, but they changed it to mother, uh, God changed it to mother of nations. And God's name change in this moment was quite appropriate because he changed um, Abraham, uh, because God would make Abraham and Sarah's descendants the mother, uh, form many nations. So, as you can imagine, quite an appropriate name change for the occasion. Uh, in the Bible, God has many names, like God, the Holy One, God Almighty, God Most High, um, and many others. Uh, God's name in the Bible is not his designated label, um, but it actually tells us about his character. Um, and consequently, when the original or the audience heard that God proclaimed his name to Moses, what they would have understood that to be is God was proclaiming his character. Um, yeah, so the passage uses uh, God's personal covenant name, uh, Yahweh, and the, this name is to show respect to God, is translated as the Lord um, in the NRV. Uh, now, as a side point, when you're reading the Bible and you see one of God's names, that's like a clue to pay attention. There's a reason why biblical authors use one word to describe God, uh, as his name, rather than another. Um, and knowing the meaning of the name that the author uses actually helps you interpret the passage. Uh, so, to understand what the author is trying to say to us. Um, my second point is God's name is overwhelmingly gracious. Uh, Let's look at God's proclamation of his name in verses 6 and 7. God proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. God describes his name, heaping up word after word that describe his wonderful benevolence towards his people in in this passage. Um, These characteristics are good news to sinners like us who know their only hope for salvation is God's mercy. God says his name is compassionate. I think his heart is inclined to showing us compassion. He has a tender heart towards his people. He is a father who deeply cares for his children. He genuinely cares for his people. He also said his, his name is gracious, meaning that he's kind to people when they don't deserve kindness at all. God's kindness is totally unmerited. The people who are the recipients of God's grace for his recipients of his mercy never deserve it at all. Moses could have confidence that God would pardon his people Israel because God was merciful, not because they deserve forgiveness. They clearly did not deserve forgiveness if you've been paying attention for the rest of the past stuff in Exodus. Moses would later even go on to describe Israel as stiff-necked. Moses could be confident because of God's graciousness. In the same way, we as Christians can have certain hope that we will receive God's mercy not because he is gracious, not because we deserve mercy. All Christians who, who are truly Christians know they don't deserve it. If you look to God's gracious character, not your own poor moral performance, you can have hope that God will be merciful to you. As New Covenant believers, we have experienced much more grace than Israel ever had. We were estranged from God. We were his enemies. And God has adopted us into his family. Given us an inheritance, made us a new creation, forgiven us our sin, enabled us to have fellowship with him and with each other. God did all these great things for us despite us living in rebellion against him. So imagine, if you will, uh, there's this peasant and he's rebelling against a great powerful king. The king hears about it and so he marches out with his hundreds of soldiers to meet the peasant. The peasant's standing there waving his fists at the king and the king has every right to punish the peasant in that moment. He's, He's a rebel. And there's nothing the king the peasant can do against this massive army. Um, However, the king gets off his horse and he says to the peasant, if you will end your rebellion, this is what I'm going to do for you. Not only will I forgive you for your rebellion against me, I will also adopt you and make you one of my princes. You will receive an inheritance in in my kingdom. You will deserve... You deserve prison garments, but I will clothe you in fine clothes and golden jewelry. Just like in that story with that peasant, we are like him. We deserve justice for our rebellion, but God did not give us the justice we deserve. Instead, he forgave us, but he even went further than that. He gave us the honour of being his sons and daughters. He adopted us into his family. 
He made us citizens of his kingdom. He gave us an inheritance with him. He gave us the robes of righteousness. God says his name is slow to anger, meaning he will in the end punish human rebellion. Yet, he delays the execution of his justice. There is a tension here, a bit obvious. Uh, God ensures there's a long period by which people may obtain his mercy, and he dispenses this mercy when people turn from their rebellion and put their trust in him. At the same time, there will ultimately come an hour when the acts of God's justice will fall on those who remain obstinate and will not put their trust in him, in his name. Since God's righteous anger is a real reality, if we do not obtain mercy through faith, we will face his righteous justice. God is patient now, not coming in judgment, but this does not mean he won't come in judgment in the future. God's graciousness does not mean that he will automatically forgive anyone, everyone. God says his na- uh, he is abounding in love and faithfulness. The word love is a bit of a difficult word to translate into English. Um, it, the word's hesed, and this word hesed is difficult to translate, um, is obvious uh, by the various phrases that we use to translate it in our various English translations. So, for example, some translations translated as faithful love, others loyal love, steadfast love, kindness, um, and loving kindness. want to keep two words there. Um, To understand this word, we need to remember the Bible depicts his relationship with his people as a bit like a marriage bond. The word refers to God's love and kindness towards people who keep covenant with him, who keep this contract. Um, And the writings of the prophets often speak of the times when Israel actually disobeyed the covenant, they committed spiritual adultery by worshipping other gods, and when Israel did this, he withheld God's, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness, from them, uh, his covenant love. Um, But the the focus of this passage is not on the absence of God's love to Israel. It's actually on the abundance of this Hesed love towards those who keep covenant with him. So God's abounding in this covenant love so much, the writer tells us, or God tells us, that it overflows to thousands of people. Much more than the people who will later be mentioned, the third and fourth generations. Um, He talks about thousands here, but when he talks about his justice, it's third and fourth. Um, So there's the emphasis, the mercy over justice. He not only abounds in kindness to those who are faithful to his covenant, but he also abounds in faithfulness to people. He's totally reliable. He can always be trusted to keep his promises, to bless his faithful people. This is why God's often metaphorically described as a rock, which is unmoving and unchanging. You can always rely on him to keep his word. Unlike humans who fail to keep their promises, he will not fail to keep his promises to us. God also says he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. These three words are 
the words that the Old Testament biblical authors most often use to describe sin and human evil. Uh, Iniquity refers to that inward twistedness of our hearts um, and our associated feelings of guilt. Transgression is just where that refers to a violation of a standard, um, probably the covenant in this context. Um, and it's, sin is just a very broad term that refers to uh, not falling short of God's moral standard anyway. Um, by using these three words, God's exhausting the Jewish dictionary to describe the things he forgives. Um, just to paraphrase God, um, you could paraphrase it something like this. God forgives our moral failings in every, each and every category of our wrongdoing. His mercy is enough for every one of our sins, from the smallest to the grossest sin. Remember when I asked you before if you've committed a sin so heinous that you would have difficulty believing God would ever forgive you? No matter what you have done, if you are in union with Christ, you will be fully assured of God's kind. You, sh- you should be fully assured that God will be kind to you. He will forgive your sins. You can be absolutely certain of this fact if you're relying on his mercy. Now, I want to read a bit of Psalm 103 to you. I think this psalm does an amazing job of illustrating God's forgiveness to us. Um, Please pay attention while I read this to how this psalm illustrates God's forgiveness. Um, I think it's really powerful. Um, This section is from verses 7 to 13 of Psalm 103. He made his way known to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He will not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. My my third point is that God's name is just, so his mercy cannot be presumed upon. Uh, After revealing uh, to Moses his benevolence, God then reveals his justice. Let's read the rest of verse 7. Yet he does not believe the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. Interpreting this section of verse 7 can be quite challenging. It's a difficult passage, um, and the more I studied this passage to prepare for for this uh, day, the most, most uh, diverse interpretations I've found. Um, the phrase for the sins of the parents seems to contradict the statement found in other parts of the Bible that God will not... Uh, uh, for example, like Ezekiel 18, that God will not judge people for the sins of their parents. Since the Bible never contradicts itself, there must be a, an explanation for this occur- apparent contradiction. Uh, The most likely interpretation, in my opinion, and I want to make it clear, it's my opinion, um, 
is that it's a warning that God will judge people uh, for continuing the sins of their parents. Often when children of pa- uh, people are children of parents who are living in rebellion against God, they follow in their parents' footsteps, uh, continuing their rebellious ways, their manner of life. When this happens, God punishes people for continuing in their parents' sins. However, when children do not follow their parents' way of life and become obedient to God and have faith in him, God relents from his anger towards them. God's judgment on sin does not happen only on the individual level, but also on a, on a collective groups. Um, passages like Ezekiel 18, which I mentioned before, refer to God's forgiveness for, on generations that do not follow in their parents' footsteps. In our passage we're looking at today, God is talking about his wrath on generations that continue in rebellion against their parents. The, their rebel, the rebellious ways of their parents. Nevertheless, it's important to remember that the main point of this passage, however you interpret it, is that God is just. He will not let sin go unpunished. God will ensure there is a just proportional penalty for all our sins and all our rebellion. When we violate God's law, there is a just, right, and fair penalty for what we did wrong, for our crimes. God will ensure this punishment is always enacted. Either Jesus will take our place on the cross and receive the punishment we deserve, or that punishment will be enacted on those people who reject God eternally in hell. If you're here today and you are a non-Christian, there is something if you're someone who hasn't put your faith in Jesus, you are not relying on his great mercy to forgive you from your sins, I am glad you're here. It's the best place you should, for you to be. This warning is directly applicable to you today, though. If you don't turn from your rebellion and put your faith in Jesus, one day you will face God's judgment. The Bible is very clear that it teach, when it teaches that all people fall short of God's moral standards. Even the people we think of the most moral, like Mother Teresa, not going to discuss how moral she is, she's a bit of a controversial figure, have committed sins that would damn them for hell forever. All our sins are committed against an infinite God and thus require an infinite punishment. However, there is a way of escape. If you If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved from his righteous judgment. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment of God in the place of people who would have faith in Jesus. If you are someone who has put your faith in Jesus, please, uh, if you are someone who hasn't done that, please come and speak to me after the service. If you are someone who is already trusting in God's mercy, I think this passage is a reminder to you of the consequences for people who reject God. Uh, remember the, remembering this fact is actually really important for us for many different reasons. It reminds us of what God saved us from.
God has seen all our sins, all our rebellion, yet God has forgiven us for all those sins. This knowledge should actually show us how astonishing our salvation actually is. Our salvation will mean very little to us if we forget what danger we were in before God rescued us. It also will, remembering this danger is actually really important in motivating us um, to urgently call other people to be reconciled to God. This remembrance also encourages us to stay reliant on his mercy. Um, So my fourth point is that those who appeal to God's name will receive mercy. We see this truth in Moses' response to God's revelation of his gracious character. Let's read Moses' response to God's revelation, verse 8 to 9. Moses bowed to the ground and at once worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us, although this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us for your inheritance. To understand this passage, we need to return to a little bit of its context. Because of Israel's rebellion against him, God decided to limit his relationship with Israel. Uh, God informed Moses that he would no longer be present with Israel when they went up to the land of Canaan, when they went up to the promised land, and God enacted this restriction as part of his mercy. God was concerned that he might end up destroying Israel in his wrath because of their great obstinacy, because of their rebellion, and to avoid putting Israel in danger, he would not go up with them. Instead, God would send his angel with Israel, presumably, to protect them from the danger that would be on the way. After, God, uh, after Moses received this great revelation of God's character, of his mercy and his willingness to forgive, Moses actually made several requests. Not the first thing I would do, but it's what he did. Uh, Moses requests that God would be present, present with Israel when they go up um, to the promised land. He requests that God would forgive Israel's sin so that no longer would be in danger of God's, of their, of God's wrath. And God would take them as, uh, to their inheritance. In, re, in, 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 in a sense, he's actually asking for nothing less than a complete acceptance of Israel as a nation. And the amazing truth is God actually proves his gracious character by granting Moses this request. God would dwell with Israel, going up with them and leading them to their inheritance. God's response to Moses is one of the uh, many examples of God's mercy to those who trust in his name. As, it, as such, it illustrates the biblical doctrine that God saves those who trust in his name. This doctrine is actually explicitly taught in Romans 10.13, which says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This promise is like all of God's promises. It is certain and fully trustworthy. God never breaks his word. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust in his infinite mercy, you can have absolute certainty that you will be saved from your sins. 
you will be forgiven. It doesn't matter how grievous your sins are, you will be forgiven. God's infinite mercy is greater than all your sins. As Christians, we need to remember the ultimate climax of God's love towards his people is seen in the cross. Jesus was beaten, whipped, and crucified for our sins. He suffered separation from the Father who he had been intimate with for all eternity. He was mocked and humiliated for our sakes. God's name is not some abstract concept that doesn't actually affect reality. Our God is not a God who says, in some loving and meaninglessly, meaninglessly abstract way, that he doesn't really mean anything. He did not sit in heaven and say, I really love you, but I won't do anything to help you. That's not the God we worship. That is not our God. His great love motivated him to give up all that he had into heaven, in heaven to become human, to walk the path of Calvary. He sacrificed all that he had and lived a life of pain and suffering so that he might show us mercy. Pathetic, wretched sinners like us. We Christians who continuously are sinning and rebelling against him just like Israel did. We who do not love him as we should, who daily struggle with competing desires, both a desire to serve him and yet a desire to serve our own sinful desires. And who, to be honest, often fail, regularly fail and serve sin rather than the lover of our souls. We are the ones who are recipients of God's mercy on the cross. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater mercy in heaven or earth than what was done for you on Calvary. If you can take nothing away from the sermon today, please still remember this one thing. Remember what great love he has done for you at Calvary. If you can, yeah, sorry. Uh, I, I want to end the sermon now in prayer. Father, thank you for, for you are both a God of amazing love and you are also a God that deeply hates evil. I pray that the beauty of your character, this wonderful message um, that I hope I have conveyed today, would grow this congregation's love for you. Amen.